0: Go open your Bibles to the Book of Ruth. We'll be in Chapter One, beginning in verse 22. This is this morning one of the most important messages that I've ever brought to you. And I realize that I have said that before. (laughs) But this time I mean it. (laughs) No, I always mean it, but... Sunday in and Sunday out we study the word together and it's it's a great blessing and it's wonderful to be in the word and I enjoy it so much but there are certain weeks where the Lord taps me on the shoulder whether through a phone call of, of a friend or through confirmation in some other way saying this is exactly where we want to go. This is exactly what the fellowship needs to hear. Don't shrink back from this message and that's happened this week. Let's begin in verse 22 of Ruth chapter 1. Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi a kinsman of her, had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family, family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, "'Whose young woman is this?' And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, "'She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab.' And she said, "'Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheep.' Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, "'Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field.' Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from where the servants draw. Sit down to verse 19. She's now come home from the day, and her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives, or some of your translations say, He is our kinsman-redeemer. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Well, furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her daughter, Light is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. Verse 23. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest as she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word this morning, that you'd speak your message to us, and Father, that you would hide your word in our hearts. Father, I pray that this just wouldn't be another another message to be shelved, but that your words would pierce and get in deep and affect real change. Impact us, Father, in a way that we know we could not be impacted unless it was your Spirit speaking to us. We ask this, Father, with all sincerity, with all integrity, with all desire, that that you would teach us your word. And you would speak the desire of your heart into our heart. So, Father, when, when when we delight ourselves, as your word says, in the Lord, and you give us the desire of our heart, that desire, Father, would be your desire. That hope, that longing, that passion, Father, would be yours. Teach us, Father, to yearn for what you yearn for. To ache, Father, even, for what you ache for. And guide us, Holy Spirit, into your word this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Those are the words of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Said this never lose heart in the power of the gospel. Never lose heart in the power of the gospel. I got a phone call last night from a dear sister, and she was weeping. And she said, "I've got a heavy burden that I can't let go of. It's been on my heart all day long. It's just been weighing me down, and I I feel like I've got to talk to you about it." She apologized for calling me, and I said, "Don't, don't do that. Don't ever apologize for calling me." And she said, "There are so many people at the bridge who are weighed down by their burdens." She said, "I'm just, I'm sensing this, and it's a heavy weight." And she said, what I feel like the Lord is saying is we have got to let go of our burdens. And she said, because the time is short. And we talked about it a little bit more and prayed about it, but it really impacted me because this is exactly what I have been looking at all week long. This is exactly what the Lord said to talk about. We have burdens in our lives and on our hearts, but gang, those burdens are in the way of what God has for us. Those burdens, as long as we hang on to them and we don't give them over to Him, guess what? We will be ineffectual in this world for doing what He has created us to do when our burdens weigh us down. And He is the dad, the father. He says, let me take that from you. Let me lift that off of you. So that you're not walking around with a heavy weight. I didn't create you to bear this heavy weight. I created you for something completely different. And I want to remove that weight from you so that your eyes can be on what I have called you for. What I have made you for. I ask this question, what does it take to mobilize a Christian or a fellowship of Christians? Why is it that some people seem to be used by the Lord to lead numerous other peoples to Christ, while others of us have such a hard time, almost embarrassed to speak the name of Christ? What's the difference? What makes the difference? This question, by the way, has rolled around in my head since I was 10 years old. I was 10 years old and I... I got up and walked forward at the end of a a service. I gave my life to Jesus. I, I was baptized in my parents' swimming pool that afternoon by my dad. And they handed me a little golden box booklet called, Now That I'm a Christian. All they really need to do is hand me a Bible. But they handed me a little booklet, a little pre-written thing that tells you here's how you're to live out your Christian life. Here's what you're supposed to do. And one of the number one things the little book talked about was evangelism. You've got to share about Jesus. You've got to go into the world now. Now you're one of the disciple makers. Now you've got to be about this business. And I read that over and over, and it was a daunting task for a ten-year-old boy who was more concerned about Legos than lostness. And I was supposed to go out, what, on the playground and start evangelizing my friends and maybe my teachers end up in the principal's office and start talking to him about Jesus? How was I to do this? I had no equipment for it. No training, no idea, but the little golden embossed book told me to do it. And I figured, well, now that I'm a Christian, this is what I must do. And that thought has haunted me for over 30 years. How do we do that? I understand, Jesus, that you talk about this idea of sharing the gospel. I agree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon to never lose heart in the power of the gospel because I know the gospel has changed my life. We're just saying about the gospel. I see your face. Your dear bruised face. Wounded, proclaiming my saving grace. That's what the whole song is about. That's why we take communion, by the way, to proclaim Jesus' death until He comes. The gospel is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, shaking our place, and rising from the dead again, and doing so so that all of our sins can be washed completely away. That's the gospel. And it has a great power in it. But how am I supposed to take that? What if, is, is there a list of five things I'm supposed to share with people? Is there a, a training seminar that I can go to? And, and I've, by the way, been to several I've gone through all kinds of evangelism training. And I've always come out the, underside, the other side going, Well, that's a little offensive. These people don't even know me. And I'm supposed to pound on their door and say, Hey, <laughs> never met you before, but i got to tell you about Jesus who changed my life. While they're looking in my eyes going, Who are you? Why do I care about your life? And I struggle with these things, and I have for years, and I still struggle. How do I, how do we become mobilized as disciple makers like Jesus invited us to? How do we become energetic evangelists for Jesus, reapers and gleaners in the great harvest of souls? How are we supposed to do this? I want to start, before we get back to Ruth, by giving you three things every Christian should know. And this is not a list, it's not a to do, it's not just a snazzy way to start a sermon. These are three absolutely critical things I believe that we need to understand if we are going to be able to effectively share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first one is simply the propitiation of the Son's sacrifice. Propitiation. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. The propitiation of the Son's sacrifice, for without it, we ourselves would not even be saved. We wouldn't have anything to talk about. There would be no issue here before us. The propitiation of the son's sacrifice. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. That is our legal counsel with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation. It's the Greek word helasmos. Helasmos means to appease or to reconcile. To appease or to reconcile. First John chapter 4, verse 10. John said, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The appeasement. To pay that price. To fulfill all of God's righteous requirements. Jesus died. That's why He died. To fulfill all the righteous requirements that you cannot fulfill. That I cannot fulfill. The propitiation of the Son's sacrifice. Propitiation is the closest word we have in the New Testament to the Old Testament word atonement. We talked a lot about atonement, especially in the book of Leviticus. Because the atonement was what happened when a lamb was taken up and slaughtered and the blood poured out on the altar, the atoning sacrifice. But you know, the authors in the New Testament never used the word atonement. I find that interesting. What was so key, so much at the heart of Judaism in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word is not used once in the New Testament. Now if you have a King James Version, you'll find it used once, but it's not what the word means. It's not exact. It's not in the original language. Atonement doesn't appear. They use the words instead, propitiation, or reconciliation, or redemption. Why the switch? Why does the Spirit suddenly stop talking about atonement and start talking about propitiation? Because listen, atonement covers over sin. Propitiation removes sin. See the difference? In Jewish faith, man, I could go in on that day of atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year, and the atoning sacrifice covered over my sin, protected me from that sin. Covered me So I wasn't responsible for it At least in the short term But propitiation erases it Not covers It's not even there It's gone It's history The propitiation of the son's sacrifice The complete redemption It saves me And begins to prepare me To take the gospel into the world You've got to understand that First and foremost If you are a Christian You have the propitiation of Jesus Your sin Washed away. They are gone. They are not judging you. They cannot be used against you anymore, even in a court of law. They're gone. Propitiation. Second thing we have to understand as we move forward in this in this idea that I am truly saved, and that is the possession of the Father's saving grace the propitiation of the Son's sacrifice, the possession of the Father's saving grace. Listen to me, and this is, this is a, something we give middle assent to, but your hearts have got to wrap around this concept. How many of you, let me just see a uh, show of hands, no, actually, don't raise your hand. Think about this. How many of you actually, truly believe, without a doubt, that your eternity is secure with the Lord? How many of you know you have no question about it. You never wake up in the morning and go, what if I'm not truly saved? You never question it. You never. How many of you are in that place? That is the place the Lord invites us to be. To know without a doubt the possession of the Father's saving grace. God's given us this grace. Do you possess it? Have you claimed it as your own? Far too many Christians waffle on this question. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you may hope. Not so that you you feel good most of the time. Not so that you can struggle through and somehow come to that realization. No, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can claim it. Do you possess that truth? Do you own it? Paul says Romans 8.15 You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba Father. There was a, a picnic recently That occurred over in, uh, well, I forget where it was, but it was a a picnic for Haitian children who had been adopted. Russ and Kathy Pittis, many of you know the Pittises, adopted Joshua. If you've seen Joshua running around here, he is absolutely hysterical. His smile is bigger than his head. And Joshua came from Haiti, and so they went to this Haitian picnic. They didn't go last year, They, they, they waited a couple years so that Joshua's a little bit further out from his adoption. But I want to tell you something that happened when all the little Haitian kids showed up at this place for this picnic. The woman who was in charge of the orphanage in Haiti came to the picnic. When she showed up, dozens of the little girls there began running, screaming, and crying to their new parents. Because she represented to them the place that suddenly they thought they were going to have to go back to. We have, Paul says, a spirit of adoption. We are not going back to the orphanage. We are not being sent back into the world. We will not lose this, this grip the Father has on us. Possession of the Father's saving grace. And there are too many of us, gang, in Christ who don't possess the saving grace. We don't truly believe it or or we're afraid somehow we're going to lose it. When I hear of a senior saint, someone who has walked with Christ for years and years and years, questioning, Am I really saved? Have I done all I'm supposed to do? <laughs> It breaks my heart because that misses the fact that you can't do enough to do what you're supposed to do. That's what grace is all about. The Father's saving grace. And He wrote us the Word. He gave us the Word and the Spirit that we would possess this. Paul says in Romans 8, 16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And this confidence, gang, grows a heart for the Gospel. When I begin to understand the propitiation of the Son's sacrifice, my sins are completely wiped away, and I begin to take possession of the Father's saving grace, now there's a new confidence in Me. I'm not living my life to prove myself to God so I can get saved because that's already been taken care of. I am now living my life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. I am free from that junk, that religious jargon that has so burdened down the church. I'm free of it. That's not my stuff. That's part of what God's wanting this morning for some of you to lift off, by the way, the burden to remove. I would call it the burden of proof that you're trying to prove yourself to God and He's saying, i got it covered. Accept my grace. There's one more thing that I think we need to understand, to know, to have really, to become effective in this world when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Propitiation of the Son's sacrifice, the possession of the Father's grace, and finally the potency of the Spirit. The potency of the Spirit's strength upon me. Psalm 110, verse 3. says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. It's a great verse. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In the day of your power. By the way, that word volunteer freely, that phrase is your people literally will be free will offerings. In the day of your power. Now listen to me. and You need to understand. Anytime we look at verses. And a lot of the verses of Isaiah. And the Psalms are, are used. We apply them to us and to ourselves in the present day. And I believe the Father would do that. But it's always important to know and understand the context behind it. What is this verse talking about? It's talking about the Millennial Kingdom. If you read the whole chapter. Psalm 110. It is talking about the Millennial Kingdom. And the coming of Jesus. In all his power. And in that time. All of his people will be free will They will volunteer freely. They will be excited about doing anything the Lord says because they're with the Lord. That's the context. However, there is something we can learn from this in this fellowship today. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. It is the power of Christ's Spirit that enables us to speak the name of Jesus. That enables us to to somehow become evangelists. Though we were never trained. Or, in spite of the fact that we were trained, (laughs) the power of the Spirit, the potency of the Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, I I am not an effective witness. Doesn't mean I can't share Jesus. But there are those walking around with the propitiation of the Son's sacrifice and possessing the Father's grace, but there's no power there. How do I get that power, Rick, asking for it? I want your power. Holy Spirit, I need your power on me to do what you would have me do. Would you fill me? Would you come upon me? You want to know one of the fastest ways to quench the Spirit? Worry more about your spiritual experience in the salvation of lost souls. Focus more on yourself and what you're getting out of the whole Christ relationship than you focus on people who don't even know Jesus yet. And you will quench the Spirit. How much mental, emotional, spiritual energy do I pour into me rather than the harvest of the lost? You want to know why there's a weight on us, a burden on many of our lives? It's because we're, we're in here. And we're functioning right here. And we're talking to God about it. God, I, I need your help right here. I want you to, to work with me right here. And he's going, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are white under the harvest. Jesus said, propitiation of the Son's sacrifice, possession of the Father's grace, the potency of the Spirit's strength. These make for a person who has not only saved themselves, but one who never loses heart in the power of the Gospel. I tell you this because as I've been reading through the book of Ruth, the main message finally hit me. I finally got it. What do you mean the main message? Well, you may remember in Joshua... It's the story of the people of Israel crossing the Jordan River and coming into the land and taking possession of the land. But the main message of Joshua, we came to understand, at least for us in this present time, was being immersed in the Holy Spirit. That picture of crossing the Jordan River, the Jordan looking for us, symbolizing for us a second baptism. Remember Paul said that they were baptized in the Red Sea. But then they had to cross the Jordan as well. And there are all types of amazing pictures and types throughout the book of Joshua that indicated the immersion of, the involvement of the Holy Spirit and His power in our lives. In Judges, I was surprised to see that the application was agape love. But that was the message that God was, was sending through the study of that book. I thought, you know, we're going to have to hang on because Judges is just a roller coaster ride of sin and judgment and failure. And as it turns out, God says, No, no, the message is agape. Because though Israel failed seven generations in a row, I picked them up and saved them seven generations in a row. Agape, look. So what's Ruth all about? Ruth is all about the harvest. It is the book of the harvest. The entire story takes place at harvest time. The last verse of chapter 1, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. If it was a play, the backdrop would be fields of barley. The set design would include huge sheaves everywhere placed in, in strategic locations around the around the stage. If it was a movie, we would pan in at the beginning on rolling massive fields of wheat, amber waves of grain. <laughs> kind of like the picture up there, which you can't see real well with the light on, but that's the idea. We, we kind of fly in on that at the beginning of the book of Ruth. And, and any director, by the way, Sean, if you ever write about Ruth, any director who would do that and not begin with a, a huge field of barley misses the whole point. If this story was painted onto canvas, the landscape would again be fields, standing tall with grain. Harvest time. You might say, well, Rick, didn't we last week see that Ruth is a story of romance and redemption? Exactly. Harvest. It is one and the same in the Father's heart. Verse 23 of chapter 2 says, She stayed close by the maid of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. There were seven weeks, time, between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Fifty days, roughly. Fifty days in all as the harvesting went on there in Israel. In other words, for seven weeks Ruth and Boaz went out to the field together. We don't see that in the book. We get one verse that says she stayed there from barley to wheat harvest. So we don't get the whole picture of their of their romance. We get to see more of it in chapter three, and it's beautiful. But what we miss is the fact that they had seven weeks of dating, basically. Walking out to the fields together, talking together, eating together. And I think there in the fields of Boaz, that's where the romance sprouted and began to grow. All at harvest times. In fact, you can even take the four chapters of the book of Ruth and break them down into four locations. Chapter 1 takes place in the dead land of Moab. Chapter 2 takes place in the fields of Boaz. Chapter 3 takes place on the threshing floor of Boaz. And finally, chapter 4 concludes in the home of Boaz after the harvest is over. It's a powerful picture of exactly the world in which we live, where we stand with Jesus today. But listen, the whole harvest romance that we see in Ruth is really about a seed that was promised by the Lord. Nearly 3,000 years before this story took place, back at the very, very beginning, when we learned that a seed would come from a woman growing into a Redeemer, leading to the greatest harvest of all time. And you Bible students, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's called the proto Let me get technical with you just for a moment. The Proto-Evangelicum. The human phrase meaning first gospel. The first gospel. When was the gospel first preached in all of history? You might be surprised to find that it was in the book of Genesis chapter 3. As a matter of fact, you might be really surprised to find that it is at the fall of Adam and Eve that the gospel is first proclaimed to the world. You may be further surprised to discover this while God is talking to the serpent. And he indicates to the serpent the manner by which he was going to fall and humanity would be saved. Here's what he says, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he, the, the seed, shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. He says to the, to the snake, to the serpent... I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And as we've talked about before, women don't have a seed. They have an A. It's man who has the seed. So before we even get into the story, God has already proclaimed a miracle is going to take place. A woman is going to miraculously have a seed. That woman, you know who that is. was Mary. Who by the Holy Spirit... Conceived and gave birth to Jesus Christ, the proto-Evangelism, first mention of the gospel. We need to understand this morning God's harvest was then and it is now completely intentional. This is not a harvest by happenstance. Now I want you to see something. Go back to chapter two, Ruth, verse one. We only had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth said to the Moabites, the Moabites said to Naomi, Please let me go into the field and glean among the ears of rain after one in whose sight I might find favor." And so she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now watch. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now in these days, here's what happened. Owners of lands and farms were told, they were required by law, not to reap the edges of the field. This is God's welfare program. Don't reap the edges of the field so that the poor among you can come to the edges of the field and they can reap grain and have something to eat. They can be taken care of. God has them working for it, but he makes sure that they are provided for. And so this is what they did at the time. Dignity and provision were given to people who who didn't have much. And so here's Ruth and Naomi, and they don't have anything. They come back from Moab, and Ruth goes out, and she ends up, amazingly, in the field of Boaz, who is Naomi's kinsman who is the man who can provide a life for Ruth and Naomi. And Ruth and Naomi don't even realize this. Ruth doesn't have a clue. She just kind of wanders into the field. It just so happens that she ends up in Boaz's field. It just so happened that Boaz came out to the field that day. It just so happened Boaz asked his unnamed servant about Ruth. Who is this? It just so happened. What a coincidence. You know, what a, what a twist of fate. What blind luck. What a fluke. What a happy accident. I could go on and on about the the coincidence we see here. And I can't help but feel like the author wrote this with his tongue planted firmly in his cheeks. Ruth didn't happen into anything. There was sovereign grace at work here. This was not a mistake. Nothing just happens. Please hear this. Nothing just happens. You didn't come to worship this morning by accident. Oh, I know some of you come every Sunday, but it didn't just happen that you chose to wake up and be here this morning. It's not an accident. God's sovereign grace is working out even in the midst of grief, sorrow and despair and no matter where you go no matter what you do we talked about this last week God is at work working out all things for good for those who love Him even your sorrow even your heavy burdens even those weights that you don't feel like you can unleash and give back to the Lord even those things Romans 8.28 all things worked out together for good for those who are called according to His purpose who love the Lord He is working it out And this is sovereign goodness at work. This is, gang, the intentional harvest of souls. For if Ruth hadn't just happened to go into Boaz's field that day, Ruth herself never would have become a part of, truly a part of Israel. And ultimately in the bloodline of Jesus himself. Psalm 33, verse 8. Says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. God is intentional. He is intentionally at work right now working out his plan among us. Isaiah 46 verse 9 God says Remember the former things of long past for I am God. And there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And you might say, well, Rick, my life's been a little off. I, I've been kind of in a place of rebellion. You're talking about people who are right with the Lord, and, and I'm just not right with the Lord. And you're saying His work can still be established in me? He's still doing it. Yes, He's still doing His thing. Look at it this way, gang. Elimelech and Naomi were in rebellion when they fled Bethlehem and went to Moab. This was against God's will as, as described, as spoken in the book of Deuteronomy. They were not to go to Moab somewhere else. They were to be in the promised land. They were in rebellion when they ended up leaving the house of bread and swirling around in the toilet of Moab. If you weren't here last week, look up Psalm 108, verse verse 9, I believe it is, describing Moab that way. Israel was in rebellion throughout the days of the judges that we just studied, and that's when the story takes place even though man even though woman is in rebellion God is still working out His plan. God is still making happen what He has purposed from the beginning to make happen Jonah was in rebellion I remember the story of Jonah Jonah and the big fish the one that the critics love to say, "Oh, that didn't really happen. Well, actually, it did really happen. In fact, there's evidence of it happening at other times, men being swallowed by a fish and then, you know, puked up onto the shore and and actually surviving. It's an interesting story we'll get to, you know, in a few weeks, but God didn't choose for Jonah to rebel, did he? God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, okay, great, I'll go to Tarshish. Heading in the opposite direction. And so he gets swallowed by the fish. He is in rebellion and God is still using him. How? Because while he's in the belly of the fish, something's happening to him in there. He's getting bleached. This is what happens. The intestinal fluids of the fish. And again, this has been proven to happen in a couple of different cases. He's he's thrown up onto the shoreline. Probably at that point, Jonah looks very different. It's a good chance that his eyebrows are singed off, that there's not a whole lot of hair left, that he is bleached white from head to toe, and he shows up in Nineveh talking about God to a people who, by the way, worship the fish god. Interesting. God was at work. He was using this rebellion of Jonah for his own perfect good, which was the salvation or the saving of Nineveh from immediate judgment. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus chose Jonah's rebellion. As a picture of his own death. When he said in Matthew 12:40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, nothing just happens, God has a purpose. And a will that he is working out. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul says in Romans 11. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Ruth didn't just happen anywhere. She didn't just happen Happened into the field of Boaz. God was working out his divine plan that led Ruth there at the right place, at the right time, into the field of Boaz and into the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Why? Harvest. Harvest. It is all about the harvest of redemption. The story of Ruth, remember, it happened between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest in Israel. In Israel, the barley harvest was celebrated by a holiday that was called the Feast of First Fruits. Leviticus 23 tells us about that. (laughs) Then 50 days later, the wheat harvest was celebrated with a festival called the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot. Also talked about in Leviticus 23. And by the way, even today when the Jews celebrate Shavuot, they read the Book of Ruth. They will open up that precious, this precious little beautiful companion, as we've called it, and they'll read through it during the celebration of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. So what? So this something else just happened to coincide with the feast of first fruits of the barley harvest and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the day of the celebration of first fruits Jesus resurrected from the dead. On that day, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:20, Christ risen from the dead has become the first fruits of them that slept. Jesus is the first fruits. On that Sunday morning, the day of first fruits, Jesus arose. Another great coincidence happened at Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Remember, seven weeks in between, seven weeks later. Actually, seven weeks is one day, and one day 50 days. You know what Shavuot is called in the Greek Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, the celebration of the wheat harvest, on that day, the church was born. That was the day the Holy Spirit came down and filled the apostles. That was the day Peter began to preach and proclaim a new thing was happening now. God was was saving people. The harvest had begun. It was intentional. All the way down the line. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 9.37, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And this is the message of Ruth for us. It is harvest time. And again, harvest time started not seven weeks ago, two thousand years ago. And we are still in it, though toward the end. And we are called to be gleaners and reapers in the harvest. Like Ruth the Moabite, who shouldn't have been in the field of Boaz at all, we have been called to the fields. To be those who glean and reap. By the way, what's the difference between reaping and gleaning? Reaping is taking it, literally cutting it down and taking it. It's the first people out. The gleaners followed and picked up the scraps. They picked up whatever was left. Some of you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to be reapers. You are Gifted with evangelism. And that that gift is actually in the scriptures. The gift of evangelism. You are reapers. You are out there. But I'll tell you something, gang. Every single one of us, no matter how impoverished we may feel like we are in spirit, every one of us are called to glean. To follow in. To pick up anything that we can. The Lord has placed this call into our hearts and into our lives. Jesus said, John chapter 4, Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For this is the case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Now listen, he says, I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. See, their work is done. The sowing has already taken place. We are not sowers, we're reapers. We are now going into and picking up what has been done in the harvest, which is a great place to be. It's the joy of the harvest. We see the fruit of the work that has already been done before us. I shared this Wednesday night. I want to share it again this morning. Verse 19 of Ruth chapter 2 says the following Naomi said to Ruth, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Naomi's question a few generations back was a question that Christians asked each other in greeting Where did you glean today? They show up for prayer meeting, for Bible study. They walk in and say, Where did you glean today? Where did you glean? It was the right question on the heart of a people who understood that we are in the harvest. Not in here. Not struggling under the weight of my burdens. God says, if you'll let me take your burdens off of your shoulder, you're free to run in the field. And a little bit of playing happens in the field too, by the way. So that's, that's the picture I did. It's children in the field who are picking up and, and sharing the good news. The harvest is here. The harvest is here. But they're playing too. You know, they're piggybacking around and they're playing hopscotch and they're, you know, doing the jumping over each other. They're having all kinds of. This is what God has called us to the joy of the harvest. See, we've even made harvesting into a burden, we've even made that heavy work. We've got to save the world. (laughs) And the Lord's saying, you get to be a part of saving the world, you get to walk in the fields. You get to see what I'm doing. You get to watch as every precious grain of wheat is harvested. Every precious grain of wheat is every individual soul that stands up and says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the harvest. And whether it's one grain of wheat or a whole field that we're watching, that's what we're called to. That is the invitation of the Lord. Where did you glean today? Are you intentionally gleaning? Are you intentional about the harvest? As time winds down, gang, so does the opportunity to glean. Some of you don't know this, but the Bridge Christian Fellowship was started with an urgency. There was a sense, three and a half years ago. There was a sense of urgency. From the call of the Lord, at least on my heart, to begin this process, to the first Bible study in the Gilmore's living room was one month. Prior to that month, I had no plans, no idea whatsoever that this is what the Lord was going to do. No idea. One month. And I remember telling some friends about it at the time and saying, why? Why do you need to do this? Why is it so important? It's urgent. I don't have time to sit around anymore. Because Jesus is coming back. And if we can start this over here on North of all places, and, and see one person saved, one head of wheat saved. Good. Rick, are you saying that we're all like wheat heads? What are you saying? Cream of wheat? I don't know. If one person... And every Sunday morning when I wake up and walk down here and I I have that little prayer walk, it's a great time with the Lord. I always think if one person is saved today, Father, the whole day is worth it to me. One person. Part of the burden of evangelism is that we are looking out at the whole field and going, and God says, Can you pick one little piece of grain? Can you do that? Do you realize that everybody who comes to the bridge alone, just this fellowship decided this year you're going to share Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowered you to save one person, the church would be double in size by next year. And you know what? I really don't care what size the church is, but the angels will be rejoicing at the number of new souls that have been saved. Jesus said in Luke 17 34, I tell you, On that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, one will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Before it's too late, let's take some people with us. Just share the message of the gospel of Jesus. You don't have to have eloquence. You don't have to have Bible training. You don't have to have gone through any seminars. Just tell them about Jesus. Every one of us know people who don't know Jesus right now. Just tell them about Him. Tell them what He means to you. Tell them what He did for you. Tell them what He can do for them. That He can lift the burden of life that is so heavy on them right now. And they don't even see it. They don't even realize What Jesus can do. Maybe you've accepted the propitiation of the Son's sacrifice. Wonderful. You're saved. Your eternity is secure. We have that promise. Maybe you've taken possession of His saving grace. Fantastic. You have confidence in your salvation. That's great. And if you have received the potency of the Spirit's power gain, better yet, you are completely equipped to go and reap in the field, to glean for the Savior. Now, one more thing to tell you here. The, the picture that you kind of see up there represented something to me when I ran across it. I was just looking on the web for pictures of fields of wheat. And I saw that one and I, and I remembered I shared this with the worship team earlier. We are in the process, as many of you know, of buying property on Troxville, 19 acres over there. And the first time that I stood on that property, it's different now because it's all been mowed. But the first time I stood on the property, it looked like that. It was waist high in hay that was all subsequently mowed down and wrapped up and sold off. And I remember standing there at the time looking out at all that going, It's like a picture of the harvest. It's like a picture of what God is really doing. And I will tell you this, you're probably going to hear me say this many times over the next several months, Lord willing, however long we're here. I can really care less about buying land and building a building. People ask me, Rick, are you excited about building a building? I'd say, no, we have a building. (laughs) we got a roof over our heads. We're fine as I shared with the worship team this morning, there's one reason, and one reason alone to me, why we need to go ahead and buy land and build something over there. Why is that, Rick? Because we want to be people of integrity before the county. We don't want to be in violation of county codes and fire laws and all the rest. And so we do want to do things right before the governing authorities of our day. But I could really care less. About having some kind of church over there where we now have our footprint, where we can say, "Look at what the bridge has become." I don't care. Someone said last week, "Rick, Rick, there's a Bridge Fellowship in Mount Vernon that just started," <laughs> and there is. They're looking for a building. I didn't. I know nothing about them. It was just last week, the first time I heard it, someone came up with the idea of using the name Bridge. <laughs> Guess what? It's been done before there are bridge fellowships all over the place it's just a name who cares what we're called I mean it's great we're by the bridge and there's a lot of symbolism to it I don't want to undermine that but that's not the point the point is not This church getting big The point is People are lost And we are called to the harvest Whether it's here or somewhere else And if every person here Decided that, the, that they could better harvest In another fellowship And people were saved Because when I would say Hallelujah praise the Lord I'm retired He has called us To the harvest Not to the building of buildings Not to the securing of land Not to any other thing Because what we're engaged in, gang, is eternal. All that stuff is going to burn. We could build the most beautiful cathedral over there on that land. Oh, man, we could have it huge with stained glass and people could drive by and go, Wow, what a great looking barn with stained glass. (laughs) And you know what? It's going to burn. It doesn't matter. As we get into this process I know things are going to come up People are going to have Questions about Feelings about The color of the carpet And I don't want carpet And they're going to say Well we should have Double ovens in the kitchen I don't really care Whatever If you feel like that's important Great People are going to say Don't we need this Or shouldn't we have that Or maybe if we made it this way And it's all You know what let's just, let's just Put something up And let's get back to the business That we're called to This church is not called To build buildings This church has been called to be in the harvest and to see lives saved. Now, you might say, Rick, I don't get out much. I'm not really a social person. I'm just not really called to evangelism. And, And my response to that is just to quote Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 18, where He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Never lose heart in the power of the gospel. Paul says it is the power of salvation to the Jew first. And also to the rest of us. If you're in Christ, gang, we are called to the harvest. And God is intentional about it. The question is, are we?